Hi, I'm Rui Branco. Welcome to Talking Usework, a podcast brought to you by the Future Labs Project. Talking Usework is a series of 15 podcast interviews to usework experts and practitioners that have a say when it comes to innovation in usework, either because they are using creative methods to empower young people, researching on use trends, or responsible for use policies at international level. Like a shot of inspiration, all of our guests have a unique point of view about how can use workers shake up, upgrade, and innovate on their daily work. Hi everyone, welcome. My name is Anita. I'm an international youth worker and trainer in Europe. And together with Rui, a podcaster from Portugal, we have been having these conversations with different stakeholders in youth work about what does it look like innovating in this field. And today we were talking with Andreas Carson. He's a researcher at European level. And he shared with us very interesting insights about what does it mean to research youth work, but also what is this innovation concept in Europe and how does the sector react to it? So we had a lot of provocations and a few jokes. It was a very enjoyable conversation, but also a very insightful one where we discussed really what uh, youth workers Uh, are trying to strive for and what is their mindset and what is missing. So it was very, very interesting. Uh, we hope you like it and let's talk youth work. Very well, we're sitting here with Andreas. Welcome. Well, thank you. Nice <laughs> to be Karsten. here. Um, so you've been around in the field for <laughs> a few years. I'm just revenging from the crazy ladies here. <laughs> but you're involved in youth work for quite a while. Can you tell us how that started? How did you get involved in youth work? Yeah, I really feel like an old man now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for this warm welcome. No, I, 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 you know, they, in youth research, they talk a lot about Generation X and Y and Z and Alpha. I am Generation PD, uh, which stands for Puberty and Democracy. Um, because when the wall came down uh, in uh, 1989, I was 13. Uh, and really, puberty and democracy pretty much arrived at the same time in my life. Oh my life. God, that's a horrible thing. And, horrible and, and, and it was it, it was a Too horrible con it was a horrible <laughs> condition uh, retrospectively, but it was quite fun at the time. I have to say, I enjoyed both enormously. And um, you lived and, puberty democratically. And I, 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 I lived out my puberty on democracy, which <laughs> I, I apologize, democracy. I'm, <laughs> I, I really I. You were overexcited about it. <laughs> in many ways, and and. So So it, it just happened very, very quickly that we wanted to establish uh, a school student organization at our school and then immediately in the city where I lived at the time and then immediately in the region. And How then I was 13. 13. So I, I was uh, I was the speaker uh, of the school student organization of the federal state of Brandenburg, which is near Berlin, uh, at the age of 14 and was negotiating with ministers how wow. the school law should look like. And, and that marked my uh, full minute entry into <laughs> youth work. And very, very quickly then I realized that as people came and went and started in our organization and left again, uh, we had to redo our trainings. And, um, and I started thinking about how we can organize that better. And then I went for the first time to a seminar of the European School Student Organization in 1995. Mm. 
um, in uh, Denmark. And, and that was then my entry into European youth work, I guess. And I have left a few times in between. I tried. <laughs> it pulls you and, back. And failed. Yes. <laughs> it's stronger than you. It's stronger than me, definitely. Yeah. The force. It, it's a bit, yeah, it's a drug. So then you became a youth worker or a trainer? Or? Well, I never really wanted to decide. Mm. Um, I always liked the idea in the beginning intuitively and now very conceptually of a hybrid. So mm -hmm. I did uh, a lot of youth work uh, back in the city where I lived and then in Potsdam where I stayed for a while. Um, I started getting interested in youth policy very early on and, and translating what young people wanted to the language of policymakers. Then I was put into youth research. And that's where I guess I'm pretty firmly at now and still have good and healthy connections to the other parts of our field. But at the moment, most of my work is youth research, research communication. Great. And for how long are you doing youth research? Well, I started with that against my explicit will <laughs> in 2008, so 10 years now. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, it's nice to have this experience under your belt, but it also is a bit scary talking about it. You know, I I I never really, you know, I never really think much about getting old, but when you sort of have it in front of you, it's a bit uh-oh. Oh, well, in any case, uh, all you mid-40s out there, I believe in you. <laughs> and also at this table. Uh, oh, at, at, yes, and at this table, I believe yes. in you too. Yeah. We all look very fresh, by the way. Yeah, yeah we, we look yeah. like... We look 15. fantastic. We look no, no lower than 42, I think. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the other day I was at an event of researchers, which tend to be much older than me. And, you were and, the and, 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 and I was actually I was actually told off by a professor who has been, you know, has held a chair for uh, a particular branch of sociology, which I will not reveal here, uh, to protect his identity. But he said, well, young man, <laughs> why don't you gather some experience and then we talk again? And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, hey, I'm 40, you know, but in any case. Here we well, go. but I, I liked something that you said, which is, this idea of being professional hybrids. I think when we are with our feet in different things, don't have to be completely, you know, it doesn't have to be astrophysics and language or anything. But when we have our feet on different perspectives, I think it enriches a lot what we do because we create, we are bridges, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, at the moment, youth research is uh, such a hectic business in Europe because the new program generation comes up and everybody wants to hear what we have found out about mm -hmm. the existing program generation. So I don't get around to doing much else. But uh, in my work, I also really try to mix projects mm. of uh, with a research nature, with uh, projects with youth work nature, and never lose my connection to uh, to the other parts of our field. But I think it's equally important also to just acknowledge where you are more firmly grounded at the yeah. moment. You know, I just don't have the same experience and expertise on current youth work practice than someone has who actually does youth work every day, eight hours mm -hmm. or 10 or 12. Yeah, I was uh, listening here that you mentioned youth research a few times, but mm. uh, what is actually youth research? 
Oh, it's oh well, youth research is lovely, to be honest, because it's a very young discipline, which is always good in research because you are allowed everything. It's a bit like <laughs> it's a bit like being back in puberty, you know. And, and, so and everybody looks at you. Life team, exactly. Yeah, and everybody looks at you and says they are so cute and young, you know. And often you're ignored because you are unimportant. But then also leaning on other disciplines and really being interdisciplinary and not only talking about that is something that you can do and mm. that really benefits the field and the profession. So in the team where I work here, uh, Think Tank in Berlin called Youth Policy Labs, we have people from who study human geography, sociology, political sciences. We have an economist, which I am never allowed to say in public. I apologize, economist. I will not say who you are. Um, Paul. And <laughs> Bert. No, 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 no. And, um, and, and so that's really nice that we are allowed to do that. And it's much harder when you walk into a very old uh, discipline and try and change something there. You know, we are so young, we are so cute that nobody really gives a damn about what we do. <laughs> That's a very um, cool approach. But to what is it? What is it? So, I mean, it's... it's um, <laughs> Who is here doing all these no, cool questions? <laughs> totally fair. So, very broadly speaking, it is research about young people on the one hand and then about professional professionals working with young people. So right. it looks, for example, one of the big topics that we have at the moment is how youth transitions are changing, how young people go from one level of education to another, but also how they walk from education into employment, how many young people don't find employment, of course, and uh, something really weird happens with many of them. They go and, and move and live back with their parents, which is for any young person the most horrendous mm. imagination. Well, for most. Um, and, and so that is one big topic when we look at young people. But then we also look at how youth work is changing and not changing. And uh, one big study that was just published uh, today, in fact, in a different location, and this one in Helsinki, um, looks at professional pathways of youth workers and how they can qualify, which, shockingly, in many European countries, they cannot officially. Yeah. Which is crazy. I mean, you know, youth work has been a practice for decades and decades and decades. And in many European countries, they are still not a professional qualification that you can take that actually says on a piece of paper I'm a certified youth worker yeah, that's you might be the best youth worker in the world hmm. um, or in your village whatever you know in any way good enough to actually get a certification you can't isn't that a way of saying what you're doing is not that serious you mean what we're doing in youth no 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 no, no no oh, oh, the yeah. countries that don't recognize it as a profession It, it very, I mean, it's. It might be a lack of recognition in a way, yeah. but maybe not in all cases. I don't know. Yeah, no. I mean, it's. Uh, you know, you always have professions that emerge out of practice, right? And that's totally fine. And um, and you could, of course, argue fine social worker is in most countries a recognized profession, so youth worker might just be a variant of that. But over time, youth work has really become so self-confident mm. as a profession that it wants its own recognition and its own curriculum and not just piggyback on something else. Exactly. And it's long overdue that this happens. Yeah. Yeah. In Portugal, for example, the case is that we have a tradition, well, still not, not such a long tradition, of having social educators and animators, community yeah. animators. And normally these people were prepared to work with any target group, from children to youngsters to adults to elderly. 
and um, in different ways in, in each case, but still to work with any target. And what we're saying here is that it's not the same. It's mm. obviously not the same. And you need a set of skills if you're working with mm -hmm. young people. And most of, of all, if you're working nowadays in Europe, you have so many international opp opportunities for young people, not just the Erasmus Plus mm. for youth, but st studying abroad, getting employment abroad, et cetera, mm. that, that you need to prepare young people for this, or at least you need to be paying attention to their needs. And you, not, not always a generalistic, um, academic yeah. title like social educator can be aware of all this. So there's a mm. lot of specificity in the youth field. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also a recognition that youth work can be quite complex and complicated, especially in our okay. day and time, and that uh, giving people a professional field in which they can also develop a career and have a career without having to leave that field is, of course, also a way of keeping knowledge in the field and not letting it run wild because people... After five years in a youth club, they just have to go to a bigger institution because there, there is no way they can develop into. They can't become a youth work manager. They can't become a trainer of youth workers because all of these things do not yet exist. Depend on having on yeah. a career existing for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, being legally draft. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know that you do a lot of research for Ray Network. Yes. Now, you need to explain that to people. What's Ray Network? What do you do? Now, the Ray Network is... Uh, also very young. Well, in, in terms of a network, it's 10 years old. It mm -hmm. just turned 10. So it's just ahead of its puberty. And I'm a little bit afraid of what that means. <laughs> Array stands for a research-based analysis of Erasmus Plus Youth in Action. And um, what it is, it's, it's a self-governed network of 35 national agencies of the European youth programs um, in 33 countries. And each of them have one or several research partners. And we started out monitoring the implementation of Youth in Action. So looking at what goes perfectly well, what goes maybe not quite as it should, mm -hmm. and what might also simply go wrong or not have the impact that was intended for it. And over time, we added a couple of um, special interest research projects to it. So we looked at how youth workers gain competences through training activities in the program. Right. We looked at how young people change their citizenship activism through participation in the program. And we will soon also look at how innovation arrives in the program. That's very interesting. Before asking you about that research, um, which is one of the topics we want to talk about in this in this episode, I want to ask you a kind of a provocation, but oh, uh, but I sure. think a lot of people might have this this question. Do you think the research that is made under or how do you guarantee that the research you're making is really neutral and it's not a research that kind of um, confirms that everything is going fine. Because I'm sometimes when I talk with people on the field, a lot of youth workers, trainers, they're saying like, yeah, these researchers, and they dismiss them mm. because they say, yeah, of course, but what else they would say? They have to say things are working fine and the program has great results. Mm. Uh, how do you make sure that this, this is not actually what is happening? Well, first of <laughs> all, I have to admit, I am part of... Uh, the, the fraction, which I believe is the minority, but I have the impression that it might be growing its voice, that says research is never neutral and cannot be and shouldn't strive okay. to be and shouldn't pretend to be. I, as a researcher, have a context and mm -hmm. uh, an opinion, and my knowledge has limits, and my 
level of empathy has limits as well. And even if I put that together with several other researchers, still as a group, we will have that. So by necessity... There's some kind of bias already. Yeah, yeah. by necessity, uh, we bring bias to the game, now acknowledging that and recognizing that. And there are also methods of working against that and controlling that bias and... Uh, describing it, unpacking it, and so on. But still, you never, you never get into a position where you're fully neutral. We are not machines, you know. We're mm -hmm. all humans, and even machines are programmed by humans, so mm -hmm. they can't really be neutral either. That's another big potential of our time. But um, of course, we have the problem, or the dilemma, the challenge in the research that we do that the people who respond are typically either the ones who are really unhappy about something or are really happy with something. Okay. And because we don't force anyone and we don't dish out any presents either. So mm. we don't, you know, we don't tell people if you participate in this, you can win, <laughs> uh, you can win a modern car or some crazy stuff, you know, which uh, happens elsewhere. So we really rely on people's intrinsic motivation. We send them an online survey or we ask them, do you want to participate in this interview? And it's absolutely their choice if they say yes or no. And um, an experience tells us and evidence shows, as a researcher likes to say, but in any case, um, it's, it's, we know that people uh, participate in these things either if they have something to criticize or if they have something so you get these two positive to say, you get views. you get you get you get a lot in the middle. And I think in the beginning of Ray, this was more of a problem than it is now because mm. we have existed now for ten years. We have done the online service for the monitoring uh, over six rounds. We have more than a hundred thousand respondents to these wow, online that's surveys, impressive. and we usually get a response rate of thirty-three percent. So about a third of the people who we asked to join these online surveys and respond to us, they actually do, which is unusually high. And and that also shows us that, in principle, our, our main finding that the program, in most instances, works well, hmm. uh, actually holds, you know, because there is such a strong motivation to participate in these surveys and then and then don't be super critical about the program. But, of course, there are also things that don't work, hmm. and we frequently surprise the stakeholders of the program with the things that we find out, which is very rewarding when that happens because you really don't want to only find out where people say, uh-huh, yeah, we knew that, thank yeah, exactly, you. exactly, of course. Thank you, lovely. You're opening new doors. So, exactly, so when you actually stand in front of people and you present them with findings and they say, oh, we didn't see that coming, you know, that is the moment I live for. <laughs> <laughs> well... you got to have fun. Uh -huh, exactly. <laughs> so... Ray Eno, that's the new research yeah. coming on, and it's about innovation. It's about innovation, and it, it, it looks at one particular type of project in Erasmus Plus in the youth sector, namely Key Action 2, uh, because the strategic partnerships that are funded under Key Action 2, they are meant to foster innovation in the youth field. And yeah. for a long time, uh, there has been almost a polarized discussion in our field some people saying, oh, it's fantastic that these projects exist and they really do bring innovation. And and on the other extreme end of the spectrum, people saying, oh, but that's not innovation, it's all just blah, blah, and nothing really happens and it's a waste of money. And I'm painting this very black and white, mm -hmm. but but there has really not been any uh, any... 
any evidence, any research, any knowledge about what these projects do and what they gain, which is also fine. I mean, mm. this action started in 2014. If you really want to foster innovation, even looking at these projects in 2019 is almost a little bit early. Innovation mm. is not a quickly paced game. Um, but this conference now is for the first time bringing together Key Action 2 projects uh, five years into the existence of the action and we start our research uh, in a couple of weeks. So we'll see. I am, as much as you can be excited about research, I am excited. About <laughs> <laughs> That's quite incredible already. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when are the results expected to come out? Now, we will... Now, uh, people who will listen to this will probably laugh, but this will be a hectic research project. Because <laughs> um, normally these things, you know, they have a rhythm and they take time and they have a particular pace and it often takes two or three years mm. until you start designing research instruments over collecting the data, interpreting it, and then having reports ready. This one we are going to do in a year. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> uh, talk to me again in March 2020. And if I am super stressed and nervous and say I don't have time, it's probably because I'm late with this research project. <laughs> but in principle, we are trying to do this very, very fast and also have thought about ways in which we can share uh, interim findings with uh, stakeholders of the program just because everyone is so interested in uh, what we find out to be able to design and shape the next program generation better, which exactly. has to happen this year. So we are a little bit under time pressure there, but what is life without some <laughs> excitement? <laughs> so about this, this topic, about yeah. innovation in youth work. Uh, let's talk about that. I know you don't have the findings, uh, uh, sure. not any kind of findings sure, sure. yet, but... Yeah. As a youth worker, as a researcher who's been uh, uh, in the field for a long time, um, I'll just start with one provocative statement uh -huh. and, and let's discuss that one. Um, I know that uh, a lot of youth workers think themselves as very innovative mm -hmm. and very connected to their youngsters. Yet, I know a few, I'll put it like this, I know a few that when the deadline comes are on a week before writing an application by themselves in some dark room uh, with no connection whatsoever with young people. So my question is, what do you think about uh, youth workers as a bunch? Are they really innovative and connected to their, with young people or they just say they are? Here's a... Bank. <laughs> okay, now, now I would like to draw attention to the fact that I did not ask this question. I was I the did. crazy lady. I am no, not neutral. I'm not a researcher. <laughs> I can say No, things. but I, I mean... I think it's going to stick, the crazy lady. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. TCL, we even have an abbreviation already. I have to get some cats now? Is that what it means? Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. This, this you can do when you're 17. You know? ah, okay, yeah. okay. In three years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Five. Come on. Uh, the crazy cats. No, I think youth work suffers a little bit from uh, an innovation illusion. Hmm. Um, and that comes, I think, from just the setup of the field. As a youth worker, as you grow older and your peers grow older with you, you're surrounded by people who are, in my case, you know, in their early 40s, for mm -hmm. example. And I have to say, even though I'm not a youth worker, but I'm still deeply immersed in the youth field, I very often have trouble relating to the real-life experience of my peers who are uh, married, have children, um, have a nine-to-five job, and, uh, and don't work with young people in their everyday life. And... And somehow that 
make something to how you think of yourself. You know, I tend to think of myself as younger than my peers, and that becomes stronger as you grow older, and it is stronger if you are more directly connected with young people than I am in my daily work. And that very quickly gives you the illusion that you're hip and that you're up to scratch with uh, what's happening and the pace of young people. And very often that is actually not true. And there are a lot of youth workers who are aware of that and who deal with that and who, who, who study and try to read and talk and proactively uh, accumulate knowledge about how the world is changing and how young people's role in this world is changing. But there are a lot of youth workers and a lot of other actors in the youth sector who simply take it for granted that because they are still connected to the field that they have their finger on the pulse of time, which I think is a problem. Yeah. So to answer your question, <laughs> as a bunch, I would never say uh, anything good or get bad about youth workers, of course, you know, because uh, this kind of categorization um, <laughs> is, is useful for provocation, <laughs> but not useful for making a judgment. Um, but I think there is more youth workers who don't understand this problem mm. than there should be. Mm -hmm. Very politically. Yeah, very carefully phrased. <laughs> <laughs> Did I mention I'm running for parliament next year? No, I'm not. But um, yeah, sorry. No, but I, I honestly think that, I mean, uh, you know, I was just um, thinking back to European events around youth work and professionalization of youth work and so on. And I don't think this has ever really been debated in depth. And I think mm -hmm. it's time that we do face that because also the European youth sector is growing older. Yeah, and I think it has to do with what you were saying about yourself before, that as a researcher you have a bias, you, and as mm. youth workers we have our biases too, oh, yeah. and we should see, and many times it's our political colors become mm. very strong bias in our work, or it can be the fact that we think we know young people because we are with them, uh, but we forget that we are not them. Yeah, uh, well, so just because can be we were young, it, the yeah. challenges are not the same. Yeah, exactly. And it's also because we see many things we did when we were young. So we see Greta, we see Luisa, we see Louise uh, going and organizing the climate strikes and standing up for the rights of their generation and for this planet. And we see ourselves in them, you know, and we also went out on the streets when we were young and we also um, uh, omitted school for it and we also said you know what we don't care because if in 20 years we don't have a planet anymore nobody helps us if we can interpret a poem in four different languages and so I think it's this kind of empathy that is mm. often fogging our view on it and where we see this most uh, strikingly at the moment is with uh, all aspects around digitalization. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's another example. really interesting one because for the first time in decades, it's changing the power dynamics in youth work because what used to be the case is youth workers had a youth club or a room in a school. They controlled the environment and as much as they uh, shared that power with young people, it was always their power to share and it right. always young people's uh, responsibility to take up that power share and, and do something with it. Now, all of a sudden, this is different because young people are so much faster and so much better at moving in digital spaces. And youth workers are so much worse at it that all of a sudden, young people are the hosts 
and the ones who know and young people control the space and have the power and youth workers really do not deal with that reversion of power relation very well it's amazing i mean many of them have become afraid of moving online in the same spaces as their young people which never used to be the case i mean you occasionally maybe had someone you know who came into a youth club who had five tattoos and um didn't say anything for half an hour and just hung out at the billiard table and you were maybe wondering what exactly that dude is doing over there but over time you know you found ways of dealing with them in digital spaces youth workers really struggle enormously at the moment and that is one uh, place where our field is not innovative at all. Yeah, and it, it links with what you were saying. I, I, I was linking it in my head with um, with design thinking because this thing of youth workers don't not fully empathizing with what's happening mm. with young people. I think it also has to do with the fact that you see you young people in a certain context in your youth center or mm. if you're a street worker, you see them in the street, but you don't see them always in all their contexts, in their homes, in their schools, with their friends, online. Yeah. So it is hard to to paint a, a full picture of this persona of this mm. target group uh, if you don't really research it further than the context where you meet them. And, and I think people Absolutely. take for granted that what they tell me is what, it's what I need to do. Or the idea I have from what I see will be brilliant, yeah. but they don't really test it enough. Like you were saying, you, you have your bias, but there are methods hmm. to kind of check in on those biases and make sure that um, you're not influencing the hmm. research. And the same should happen, I believe, with youth work, that we should check our own biases more often to make sure that we are not orientating our work in a way that is comfortable for us, that fits that kind of... Um, reinforces my own beliefs, but really creating solutions that are uh, fitting the needs and the potential of young people, I would say. Yeah, and it's easy to mistake a, a part of the reality for the whole reality. Exactly. It, Absolutely. It, it's that part of the, the kid's reality. It's not the whole reality of the, the young people. Yeah, exactly. And also, and also uh, 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 youth workers have to, to be willing to give the power back to the young people so they can and because i heard a lot of times here in the conference empower young empower young mm. but people don't want to give them power how can mm. you empower them if you don't give them power if you don't give them your power actually. yeah <laughs> yes exactly and it's 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 one of the old dilemmas of of this profession uh is that we always talk about empowering young people and often do not respect enough that maybe they actually don't want that, you know. Maybe this feels to many of them increasingly like giving them a present, which they don't want to have. They take their space if they want it. Mm. And I think youth work needs to get better at just accepting that and being with them and for them in these spaces where they do that rather than saying, well, come to my youth club or come to my, exactly. uh, come to my online city that we have built uh, and, you know, participate in the framework that I give you. Yeah. Young people really uh, increasingly hate that kind of, uh, yeah, pressed frame that they are provided, no matter whether from youth work or anywhere yeah. else. Yeah, and uh, another provocation is that mm. I think that a lot of youth workers are not 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 only they're not empowering young people they are taking the power from young people they're going from the point of view that i have a certain power because i'm the youth worker and now i have some ideas and you're going to participate in the things that i'm on my solutions but actually you're taking the space away from young people if you didn't exist hmm. maybe they would come up with those initiatives so i think in some cases we are thinking that by 
or we are ignoring that by doing our job, we are also taking a bit of space, a certain space in the youth field. And some of those spaces might have belonged in the first place to young people, not to me. So this happens, for example, when we are sitting in a team in a youth center making a planning for the whole year and there's no young person at the table. Yeah. You know, should it be you deciding the whole planning alone? Should, should you not be sitting? And of course, it's not like this everywhere, but some organizations are still in this, I believe. I mean, and the, the good thing is, at least, youth work is largely a voluntary affair. You know, there is, of course, also increasingly connections between uh, social work with young offenders, for example, and, uh, and the field of youth work. And there it looks a little bit different. But by majority, youth work remains an arena in which young people walk into voluntarily and also mm. walk out of voluntarily. And youth workers realize that. You know, I mean, if, if you think about how many youth workspaces have closed and or changed in the past decades, that's pretty crazy. Uh, the way youth work was done in the 60s or 70s, we often hear still older people in our field are being dreamy about that, but yeah. by and large, that framework for youth work does not exist anymore. Yeah. And that's exactly because of that. And, and I don't want to be considered the crazy lady that doesn't believe in youth work. So another provocation, <laughs> but on the other side. Otherwise, of the, you'd be doing something else. <laughs> yes. Um, on the other side of the barricade, you were talking about digitalization and how youth workers are not catching up still mm. with, with that reality and, and how to use it in, in the favor of education and mm. uh, doing their jobs in those channels. But I would argue uh, provocatively that maybe it doesn't help. A lot of youth workers will tell you that actually they don't need more screen time. They need more relationship time. So I should not transfer my work to the online environment. I should actually just find new ways to get them to be personally present and not with screens, with each other and with us so that they have more human connection, more presence, because a lot of screening, a lot of this screen time is actually the problem. Yeah, and I think this is where the total absurdity lies uh, in our field at the moment. And, and just to say, youth research has this exact same problem. Um, the majority of researchers still think about uh, digitalization in terms of online and offline lives of young people. Now, I, and I always am confounded by that absurdity because nobody who is online often thinks about it that way you know it's your friendships uh your relationships they transcend screen and physical air and if you are a young transgender person in a small village in a predominantly catholic uh, country mm -hmm. then your strongest friendships might actually live with you and interact with you through that screen and there is this stupid stereotype and this fear-mongering uh, that screen time is terrible and screen time is bad and it's all about gaming and everybody shoots just everybody else down and they all become violent, crazy people. And, and you know, in, in research really that has been the past 10 years, everybody has looked at the dangers and fears and negative sides of, uh, of kids and young people being online so much. And only now do we start looking at the positive sides of it. 
And that has had an effect on policy. It has an effect on uh, youth work and practice, just because it's also been transferred like that in the media. You know, it's largely mediated uh, hypochondria almost. <laughs> Everyone is hysterical about young people spending time in front of screens. And the quality of the relationships that they have through that can be so much better and so much stronger than something they experience physically that this whole distinction just doesn't make any sense. This mm. is not how how this works. Yeah, they're more fluid. This, this, yes, uh, absolutely. More, and, and I like what you say, that relationships transcend the medium, yeah. obviously. And, and like, like uh, I was thinking what uh, Martin said yesterday, when you see a trend, you see a counter-trend. Mm -hmm. yes. and, and it's always the same thing, because I was thinking also in mental health, people studied depression for a lot of times, only recently, more or less recently, we started to study positive psychology. So it's always like this. It's yes. what is being wrong with the, with the thing, and mm. then we start, oh, what is right with this? Mm, yeah. Yes, and this is also a perfect example for illustrating how wrong we are still thinking about this in many ways, because um, I've recently read a, a study that argued that uh, more screen time produces Uh, more mental health problems because young people who are more online uh, talk more about mental health issues. And I was like, no, you know, this is not how it works. It's because they are online, because they have found spaces in which they can talk about this, because they find sources of information that help them express what they experience. This is why they talk more about mental health. It's not an increase or decrease. We will never be able to say that. It's an increase in awareness, an increase in vocabulary, an increase in knowledge and talking about this. I mean, think about this. At the moment, we have, we talk about our brain as if we would be going to a doctor and say, excuse me, my body hurts. But we don't. We go and say, my shoulder hurts. At least that we can say. We don't even have that kind of vocabulary in mental health yet. We can't say, you know, this part of my brain hurts, or my this kind of my low. emotion hurts, or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's, there is so little uh, public discourse about it that we are simply lacking even the words to say what we mean with it. And that this is taking pace and picking up is a positive effect of being online and not a negative one. So this always gets me a little bit riled up, as you might hear. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's the space where they found they can be safe to talk about it. Exactly. Well, I w today I'm on the provocation. Yes. Run, with it. Run with it. Go, lady. <laughs> <laughs> well... And a, a counter-provocation. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, like a, a counter-provocation counter like now, yeah, from what I said before. From the same person, which yeah, is me. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, I started by saying that some youth workers claim they're very innovative. However, um, they repeat a lot of the same um, practices, and they don't really. They end up writing the projects by themselves, not involving young people in it. Uh, another argument is. Youth workers are very innovative. We demand that they are even more innovative because the program kind of puts criteria for novelty, for new approaches, for integrating new knowledge, etc., technologies, digital, digital uh, channels, etc. However, the program itself, Erasmus Plus, is so bureaucratic and it demands such complicated procedures that it hinders youth workers from involving young people because it makes it nearly impossible and it doesn't reward really if you have the young people writing the application with you or creating the project with you. It asks if you did, but hmm. it doesn't really demand in any other way. It doesn't value do. it. Uh, some people would say that in, in, because 
if young people is writing the application with me and uses their words, then my project probably is not approved, some would say, hmm. because it doesn't say the right words, the, the hmm. golden words that, that the national agencies want to hear. So this is an argument I hear a lot of times. What would hmm. you say about that? I think it's just um, it's a matter of becoming clearer and sharper about what we mean by innovation, right? Yeah. It's I mean the youth sector is uh, still to this day in most countries and at European level vastly underfunded, mm -hmm. and the ability of dealing with the scarcity of resources is a survival skill, and that almost makes you, in the eyes of many, uh, innovative. But mm -hmm. that's not really what innovation should be about, right? Finding ways of struggling with few resources. And we hear this all the time when people tell their children stories, you know, and I took dry noodles and mm -hmm. made uh, and, and, we and, and made bracelets out of it and sold it to my neighbors. Yeah, sure. But it's, you know, ideally, youth work would have sufficient resources to do the work that they do well and at a professional level that we all seek, and we wouldn't spend our energy and time on juggling times and the little bit of money that we have right. for doing the best that we can with it. That's not what innovation is supposed to mean. Innovation is supposed to change ideally the sector to a better or a part of the sector to the better. And and that happens far too little because we have to spend so much time in doing all these other things and, and you know, writing these crazy applications. I mean, the, the, the last application I wrote for a Key Action 2 project mm -hmm. um, in our team here at Youth Policy Labs, I took an entire month off mm -hmm. from everything else to just write that one application. Unpa now, who can do that? Exactly. You know, it's, I mean, I have the luxury of having a team of 10 people who I can put on things, you know, and who can shield me, but who else has that? It's just, it's totally crazy. Uh, the amount of time that is required for not getting sufficient amounts of funding. And that's not an Erasmus Plus specific problem. It's no. a, a sector-wide problem with very, very few exceptions. There are countries, you know, that we all look up to and admire. We look at Finland and how they deal with youth work and how statutory youth work is established there, how digital youth work mm. is supported there with an entire center of expertise, Werke, great colleagues mm. um, who work uh, with, I think, in the meantime, more than 40 people on supporting digital youth work throughout the country. And that's just amazing. And that is, you know, we all dream about that, but that is what normality should be. And at the moment, it isn't. So innovation is almost limited to this uh, side existence of struggling with uh, lack of resources, really. I, I would not add a word to that because I agree with you so much. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, I would like to discuss with you um, a lot of other issues but uh, around you, innovation in youth work, but unfortunately, our time is almost running up. Life is sad. <laughs> we have a question from our previous guest to you. And yeah, thank you, Claudius, already now. <laughs> Claudius, uh, he is an NA officer. He works in a national agency for of Erasmus Plus program. And he explained to us that in DNA, they face the problem that a lot of projects are too similar, that mm. people in different spaces are creating the same kind of solutions. So his question for you was how to create more synergies and more collaboration between projects? I mean, in a way, I think, I mean, the question is almost posed in a way as if this is always a problem, mm -hmm. which I don't think it necessarily is, right? We, you want... Uh, I, I take an example from the conference here. So uh, there was a project that worked with juvenile offenders 
and and went with them on a three months long walk. Mm-hmm. One youth worker um, and one or two young offenders, and that was a way for those young offenders to offset their um, their pending uh, their pending time in, in in a youth facility, let's say, and. And I wish that would happen in more places. Now, I, d- I definitely and certainly do not believe that this is the only way in which we should deal with young offenders, but finding different ways of dealing with young people in conflict with the law, except of putting them into prison, is something I'm all in favor for and something that happens far too little. And if projects like this happen in every pocket of Europe and other projects of a similar nature happen in all pockets of Europe, that's super fantastic and it should happen much more. But I think what we need at European level, and I play this ball back to you, Claudius, (laughs) I think what we need is infrastructure that makes these connections for these projects because how can a tiny little project at the end of uh, Italy um, going on a three months walk with a young offender know that someone else has done this in the north of Finland two months ago they have hardly any way of finding out even in our crazy times of being online some of the time every day (laughs) (laughs) Um, and and I think this is what is missing and we don't have good formats for that we sometimes have you know project fairs and all these kind of things but it almost feels like we are still trying out until we find a methodology that works to connect these projects and I have no answer to what that methodology should be but I can very confidently say we don't have it yet I, you know, I have attended many of these project networking events and they're informative and inspiring to some extent, but they never provide you a good overview of what happens in every corner of Europe on the topic or theme that you are working on. Yeah, and it's one thing that we've been saying a lot of times in this podcast, which is youth workers and the youth work field has so little power as a whole mm. that mainstreaming these practices, uh, which which mainstreaming also means collaborating, improving yeah. with others, etc. It's not just repeating it and, and scaling it. Uh, mainstreaming requires uh, a lot of structure, like you hmm. say, uh, sy- systematic changes uh, or systemic changes. That's what I meant. Systemic changes that we don't have yet. We yeah. don't have the platforms yeah. to provide that, to, to provide mainstreaming seriously, that people can actually reproduce, yeah. improve on each other's practices, collaborate Yeah, and I think part of that is though acknowledging that our profession is very diverse and very vivid and that maybe it's time to start giving space to particular subgroups of youth workers, right? So having training courses and events for social workers and youth workers who work with young offenders specifically, which at the moment don't really exist, which I always think is crazy. Or to do something with youth workers who, uh, who... try and do something with the, with digitalization. We have it for some spaces. We have it for youth workers who are keen on experiential learning, for mm. example. Uh, we have it for youth workers who are, work with human rights education and through human rights education, but we don't have it for many others yet. And I think this we need to do much more proactively and much more dominantly. And then these kind of things will happen because that way you have a professional platform by which you gain this knowledge over time and then these projects will emerge, I think, naturally. Yeah, yeah. Somebody was telling me recently, or we were having a conversation about this, about if you're an organization, you applied for a key action one, let's say you you organized a training for youth workers. It was a great training. It's Mm. a great approach. It's proven to work. You cannot apply again. 
you cannot repeat yeah. the same application. So we are not promoting that good practices is disseminated, repeated. And of course, you, you train 20 people from all over Europe. Hmm. What about the other thousands? Um, so there's no really f any funding specific for scaling, for uh, being able to take things to more people. We can't repeat. We always have to invent the wheel over and over again. And that doesn't really happen. No, yeah. exactly. And it's, I mean, it's almost as if you have to reinvent projects just because the people who read the applications find <laughs> them boring if they read them for the third time. And that is, though, not to blame the people <laughs> who judge these applications. It's a function of the sector, which yeah. has little statutory funding. Because ideally, many of the projects that happen, that become funding through these programs, should actually be state-funded in every country yeah. and give youth work a fantastic base level to operate from. And then these projects that happen through European programs um, like Erasmus Plus and the Solidarity Corps would ideally be fantastic additions, but nothing that these organizations need to do to cross-finance their existence, which exactly. at the moment is very often, sadly, the case. What's happening, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking, if, if we kept, we, uh, through the years we have kept inventing the wheel, there will be no cars <laughs> because no one will build on it because if you go yes. back to the drawing board, oh, let's build a new wheel, a new yes. wheel, <laughs> you don't get to the car. Exactly. Totally. And I mean, it's even at this conference, one of the things I was really interested in with the projects that are finished, how they continue, most of them actually don't. Yes. And, and of course, this is a snapshot. There are 60 projects here and I have maybe talked to half of them. Um, so I'm really curious to see what we f will find out in uh, Ray Inno, our research project that looks at all of Key Action 2 uh, funded projects and how many of them actually find a way of continuing. But it's exactly that, yeah. We also need, well, maybe we can stop talking about this car narrative, though, and say, okay, we have two wheels now. How do we build a bicycle? <laughs> yeah. But at least something that moves, yeah. right? It's, yeah. Let's build a bicycle. I let's think bicycle. Yeah, let's yeah. do that. Let's, no, do that. let's do that. We have nice. some time now to build a bicycle? Yeah. <laughs> After lunch break. After, After lunch break. During lunch break, <laughs> yes. One last question for you is to ask you to leave a question for the next guest. Do I get to know who the next guest is? No. So it can be a particularly uh, tailored nasty question. No, it just has to be, okay, it just should be a provocative question. All right. Um, about innovation in youth work. Uh -huh. About innovation in youth work. So if you had 5 million euros, which project would you give it to? Wow, that's a great one. If you had 5 million euros, you said mm -hmm. dollars. Euros. Yeah, you can well, convert it dollars. if you want I mean, to. honestly, with, with, with Trump there and the Mueller report to be released, who knows what the dollar will be worth in a week from now. Even blockchain is a problem now. Exactly. No, we stay with a good old euro. <laughs> All right, I'm just writing it down, and it's there. Yeah. This question is also nice because it will definitely give me motivation to listen to the next episode because I really want to hear that answer. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I would love to keep this conversation, yeah, but, but I think we're hungry for going, lunch. That's yeah. the only yeah. reason. Yeah. Let's go for lunch. And once Thank again, we said 20 minutes. Yeah, and it's been a bit 48. more. Oops. <laughs> Oopsie. You are allowed Sorry. to go faster, you know, to go <laughs> No, you're not. <laughs> you'll lose, you will lose something. <laughs> Thank you fine. very Thank much. You. Thank you. It was, Andreas, a pleasure. It was a pleasure. It was, it was really nice. Thank pleasure you so much. Mine. Good luck with the research. Thank you. This intensive year. <laughs> okay, oh. guys. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's the end of the 14th episode of the Talking Juice Work podcast, this time with Andreas Karsten. 
hope to have you with us next time. This podcast is funded by the Erasmus Plus Youthwatch program powered by Tim Mice and the editorial board of UMAC University of Applied Sciences. Kari Kero, Jarmo Roxa and Christiana Vesama with the support of all the Future Labs partners.